Hello and welcome back to another episode of Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. I am your host each week where we interview different people from all walks of life but have found their way into the C-Suite. Perhaps they were the founder of the company and anointed themselves as the CEO. Perhaps they were an entrepreneur and perhaps stepped aside as the CEO and became the chief revenue officer. You never know. But today's guest has followed a trajectory that is not uncommon, living the American dream. Much like the now CEO of Franklin Covey, Paul Walker, who started on the front line. Literally, our new CEO is a 20-plus year veteran. But Paul Walker started as a sales assistant to a salesperson. Then he became an actual salesperson and then a sales manager, a sales director. He then became a vice president, an executive vice president, then the president and CEO, and now he is the full-time CEO of our organization. Our guest today is Tony Bolt. He is, in fact, the CEO of Nebraska Furniture Mart and has followed a fairly similar trajectory. Tony, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you so much, Scott. It's an honor to be here with you. In fact, Tony, let's start there. Will you take as long as it takes to walk our listeners and viewers from around the world to your own journey, how you similarly started at the front line and earned your way up into the C-suite. Would you sort of break down the five or six careers you had within, inside of Nebraska Furniture Mart? But before you do that, will you start with what was your first job out of high school or college and how did that lead you to Nebraska Furniture Mart? You know, interestingly enough, I uh, started my career uh, moving furniture out of high school um, just to try to make some money uh, prior to going to college. And uh, so that kind of got me thinking about furniture, uh, so to speak. But uh, my first job was with Homemakers Furniture, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Nebraska Furniture Mart. And I actually started there as a warehouse lead. And um, I I loaded up cars. I... uh, unloaded trucks, I operated lifts, I did all that kind of good stuff and uh, moved into a supervisor position at Homemakers, also still in the warehouse, and then uh, moved to Nebraska Furniture Mart in Des Moines, Iowa um, as a warehouse manager. After that, I did that for a little while and then became the uh, flooring builder sales manager, uh, where I basically oversaw a builder uh, team who sold flooring to builders. And I did that for about three and a half years. And then I became the Des Moines store manager and our Des Moines store is a a relatively small store in Nebraska Furniture Mart terms. It's about uh, about 40,000 square feet where um, our other locations can be anywhere from a million square feet to 1.9 million square feet of of retail and distribution. So it was a much smaller operation in Des Moines. Uh, Then I moved to uh, Omaha, Nebraska, which is where our headquarters is at. And I was the uh, appliance and electronics general sales manager. Then I moved to uh, Kansas City and was the uh, store director of our Kansas City store, which is a a relatively large facility. It's about uh, uh, 1.3 million square feet, has about 1,000 staff members that uh, work in that location. And then uh, moved back to Omaha and was the president and chief operating officer. And then uh, last year became the president and CEO of Nebraska Furniture Mart. So it's been a wonderful ride and uh, um, just a great company to work for. And I'm truly honored to uh, lead this company into the future. Tony, it's such a great trajectory because it's relatable, right? It, it, anyone, maybe not anyone, you have, of course, a great education and an indefatigable work ethic, but it proves that, you know, with enough effort and character and competence 
and perhaps even loyalty and, and curiosity, someone can move like you did from the front line to the C-suite. However, it's not uncommon that C-level officers will sort of, I don't want to say parachute in, but they'll move from one industry to another, right? Someone moves from aerospace over to automotive or hospitality from food services. In your case, you've spent, if not your entire career, the majority of it in the furniture business. How has moving from the front line up through basically all the ranks of the organization impacted the way you now lead the culture and mission of Nebraska Furniture Mart? That's a great question, Scott. Um, I've been able to see so many different angles of Nebraska Furniture Mart, not only from an employee perspective, but also from our customers. And I've been able to see a lot of processes and um, been able to virtually do almost every job or oversee almost every job at Nebraska Furniture Mart. And that has just given me a, a very unique perspective. It, it certainly allows me, and, and I think I would have known this anyway, but having traveled the path that I have, you know, it, every single job matters. And there's a reason for every single job. And, and I always say to my staff, you know, if, if you don't do your job, my job's not very much fun. And if I don't do my job, your job's not very much fun. And it takes all of us uh, to, to really operate at a high level to, to have as much fun as we like to have here. And so I think it's been, uh, it's been very unique for me to be able to travel the path that I've traveled and, and it's been a lot of fun and certainly educational and I've tried to absorb as much learning as I possibly could along the way. Tony, you're a bit of an icon in the furnishing industry. You're known and quite quotable as saying many great pithy thoughts, including one is retail is in detail or details in the retail. Talk a bit about why it's so important to focus on the small things in the retail industry. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, I, I know we're, we're communicating through technology right now and technology seems to uh, be ever present in, in all of our lives, but you know, we still live in a very social and, and people oriented world. And, and that's, that's how we all exist is, is through these interactions with people and, and uh, understanding, you know, people's needs, people's wants, um, both internally and externally, I, I think are exceptionally important. And, uh, you know, we're, we're always trying to close every single gap that we can to enhance the customer experience. And so many different things when, when it comes to people can, can go wrong. And, uh, but, but being consistent and, and always trying to find the right thing to do and, and to treat people fairly and, and to close all of those little details, all those little gaps to make sure that every interaction is, is the best possible interaction we can make is truly what's important, not only in our business, but I think probably in everybody's business. But you know, in retail, for sure, when you, when you have so many people coming into your doors on a day in and day out basis, and, and uh, the fact that we've been around for 85 years, you know, that, that is really important to us is that attention to detail. Maybe give us some examples of what is an experience like when someone walks into a Nebraska Furniture Mart? I live in Salt Lake City. You don't have a retail store here locally, although you're expanding other states around the nation. I think I read you have a store opening in Texas very soon. What, what are some of the unique experiences that someone would identify as having a Nebraska Furniture Mart, Mart experience? Well, I think first thing that you'd have to, to understand is that our showrooms are much different than most everybody else's showrooms. When you think of a furniture store, generally most furniture stores could be 40,000, 60,000, a really large furniture store might be 100,000 square feet. Our showrooms are anywhere from 450 to 550,000 square feet. And when you think of something of that size, you would think that it would be a warehouse environment. But this is a 
uh, a beautiful showroom where we have um, inspirational moments throughout our, our areas. Um, we have um, things that you can demo, so you can use live interactions. We have great partners with vendors for from not only furniture, but appliances, flooring, and electronics. We sell window treatments, we sell um, countertops. Um, so it's truly a whole home experience when you come into Nebraska Furniture Mart. So if you came into our store and you could not fill your home with everything that you could want and need, um, I'd be shocked, but uh, um, we'll, we'll do everything we can to try to help you out. But it, it really is a much different experience than you would anywhere else. It's really a destination location. And we, we generally draw from about a four hour radius to our locations. Somebody comes and spends the evening. They spend the day perhaps at Nebraska Furniture Mart. That's fantastic. Tony, um, there's not a person in the world that right now isn't waiting on their sofa. They're not waiting on their kitchen chairs or their chandelier or a lamp because of the massive disruption to the international supply chain because of the pandemic and labor shortage and all those interrelated things. My guess is you have been at the very fulcrum of the disruption the last two years. And although it seems to be perhaps improving a bit, we hope, if maybe as we're coming to the end of this, there are some encouraging signs at the, at the moment of this taping. Uh, what has it been like? How has it impacted morale amongst your partners, your vendors, your employees? You know, walk us through what the last two years has been like being in the thick of all of that with perhaps a long telescope looking at all of your furniture off the San Diego coast sitting there. What's happened and how have you kept customers engaged and your employees connected? Yeah, fantastic question. I mean, the, these last couple of years have been truly dynamic and, and um, uh, you know, thankfully people have really invested in their homes over the last uh, couple of years. And, and so certainly demand has skyrocketed. And, and with that, and then, you know, other countries shutting down, the, the United States in some portions shutting down, factories shutting down. Um, it, it has really disrupted um, things beyond belief, quite frankly. And, and uh, uh, I, I will be perfectly clear that, that it, it is still, uh, it is still a, a work in progress to get it back to where it once was. Um, you know, thankfully, we, you know, we've been the benefactor of, of uh, this, this huge demand. Um, but it, it has been very challenging and, and quite frankly, exhausting for, for many of our teammates and frustrating for some of our customers, you know, where they're trying to close on homes and, and it's been difficult to get merchandise. And, and we, I know we get our fair share of merchandise from all of our vendors, uh, but it's still a difficult, a difficult thing that we manage every single day. And, and it has been exhausting for employees. And I, I think, Scott, it's really important for us is, you know, doing the day-to-day -day job you know, in any industry that you're in, you know, can be exhausting, especially when you're when you're constantly doing a little bit more just to try to make things happen. Things that normally would operate on automatic, you know, and you're going above and beyond to, to make things happen. And, you know, our, our motto is we improve people's lifestyles. And I think that that's something that we talk a lot about at Nebraska Furniture Mart is, is you know, we have these beautiful showrooms, we have a great, absolutely wonderful selection, um, really, really good service. We have um, very low prices and, and we believe when we go into a market and, and actually, um, you know, our, our owner Warren Buffett um, once said that if you have a Nebraska furniture mart in, in your town, your quality of life is better. And it doesn't mean that just because you buy something at Nebraska furniture mart, it means when we come to town, 
we, we hopefully raise service in that city. We hopefully drive prices down in that city and, and you're able to get great things for your home at a better price with great service. Whether you buy from us or not, we're driving that in the industry as, as, a, as a retailer. And, and um, so we really focus on this idea of improving people's lifestyles. And I think that that higher purpose modem really helps our staff get through the toughest of days. And, and I, I think it's something that we all believe in. And it's something that, you know, when, when the times get tough, it's how we stay engaged. It's how we stay focused is, you know, there's another person that is walking in our door that has a need and, and we have an opportunity to, to blow their minds. And, and uh, it feels really good when we do that. And, and so I think that's what we're all focused on on a day in and day out basis. You mentioned Warren Buffett. Your company is a member of the family of companies owned by Berkshire Hathaway. We'll talk about your engagement with Warren and some lessons you've learned in a couple of minutes. But let's stick with the pandemic for a moment. Tony, as you reflect on your own leadership, your, your own family and your own health and the health of your employees, the culture inside your rapidly expanding organization, demand has never been larger and perhaps supply has never been more difficult. What's changed about your leadership style? As you think about when you emerge from this pandemic, hopefully with some immediacy, how are you a different leader? What, what, what's changed about your mindset and the way you build culture inside Nebraska Furniture Mart? Yeah, I would say that um, certainly my, my leadership style has changed. Um, I've always prided myself on being an authentic leader. And I think that I've taken that even up a, another notch, so to speak. Um, I, I really want to make sure that people understand that every person in this organization at all levels is human. And we're all fighting through difficult things. And, and you know, we all have things that go on at home. We all have things that go on at work. We all have sometimes issues with technology. Sometimes we have issues you know, with traffic on the way to work. I mean, nobody's immune to the things that happen to them. And, and you know, I really, really try to lead in a very, very positive way. Um, you know, I can't expect my team to be positive if I'm not bringing that kind of energy every day. And so I, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time you know, walk in all of our stores. I visit all of our stores every month and, and talk to all of our people. And I want to make sure that they're doing okay, both personally and professionally. And, and that communication of, of our purpose and why we're here, I think is, is um, being pushed even more so to the front. Um, before, I, I think we believed it and, we, and we, we acted that way. And I think now, not only do we believe it and we act that way, we feel it. And, um, and I think people want to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves and part of something great. And so my role is to really explain the why and what we do to, to reach that goal. So I think that's one of the ways that I've changed as a leader is that I, I try to be more transparent, communicate even more than, than ever, be authentic and, and make sure that, that I understand that we all are human and, and you know, times can be tough. And, and sometimes patience is in, 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 a, in a rushed environment is the key to success and, and patience with people, patience with our partners and, and making sure that, that we're doing the right things by all of our employees and all of our customers. I think it was the great author and motivational speaker, Brendan Bouchard, that said, um, nearly everything in life is better done slower. There's great wisdom in that, isn't there? As Dr. Covey said, with people, slow is fast. And, fast 
is slow. Uh, talk a bit about your career. When you think about your contribution in the C-suite, perhaps as the COO and now the president and CEO, when you think about the big decisions you've had to make, we'll call them for a moment the moments of truth, whether it was perhaps uh, a, a challenging financial situation or perhaps there was some litigation going on or there was a, a crisis or whatever it was, without sharing perhaps the details of it, can you think of a seminal, a, a monumentous moment of truth that you faced where you had to make a tough call, where perhaps you were getting conflicting advice from your executive team or the founders or perhaps even the leadership at Berkshire Hathaway where you had to say, this is what I think we should do and we're going to do this. Without airing your dirty laundry, what could other leaders that are aspiring to the C-suite or perhaps are in the C-suite could learn from one of Tony's moments of truth? I think, um probably one of the most difficult decisions that I've uh, probably ever had to make um, in, in leadership is um, in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we had to make a decision. We, you know, we were getting conflicting information from government sources and in, in all of our regions. We were getting a, a little bit of conflicting information from the CDC. Uh, and you know, of course, we have our own data of what's happening with our staff and and um, um, the, the health of our staff and and uh, what's happening in our communities. And um, you know, we we were allowed to stay open because we sell appliances and electronics as an essential business. But we made the decision to close all of our showrooms. And you know, you even even in the most extreme circumstances, you don't think you're going to have to close every single one of your locations at one time. You know, maybe one, there's a natural disaster at one, or or maybe there's a natural disaster at two. But we have locations in Texas and Kansas and Nebraska and Iowa, and because they're so spread out, we would have never thought that we were going to have to close all of them at the same time. Um, and one thing that that I believe was a, a very good decision, and I would do it again in a minute if if we needed to, is we led with people in mind first. And uh, we did not know the details of, of what was really going on um, with, with the pandemic and, and the spread of, of COVID-19. And so until we could understand it better, until we could put safety protocols in place, until we made sure that our staff and our customers were going to be safe, we closed our showrooms we closed two of them for 30 days. We closed another two for 45 days. Um, we closed at one point, all of our showrooms were closed. And, um, and we did that because we wanted to make sure that we were protecting our team. We were protecting our staff. And, and you know, ultimately you, you wanna protect the long-term viability of your business financially. Um, but we made the decision to protect our team in, in an uncertain time. And that was a very, very difficult decision to make holistically looking at the financials and making sure that we were going to be strong and we were going to, you know, not knowing if we were going to close for 30 days or if we were going to close for a year at the time. We had no idea how long this was going to go on. And, and um, um, you know, it, it was it was a scary time. But, you know, we led with people first. And I think that that was a, a, a I think that we did the right thing. And I think that it's a lesson that can be learned by anybody who doesn't lead people first because it's really hard to go wrong when you lead when you lead people first. Tony, thanks for the vulnerability there. We all have some version of that story 
Most of us aren't closing you know, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of square feet of retail space that impacts thousands of lives and then ripples to tens of thousands of lives when you think about the families of your employees and your vendors. And so I can barely imagine what that would have been like early on and how horrifying it could be not kind of knowing what the future looked like and with all the conflicting information. Thanks for that. Let's pivot to something actually maybe a little more uplifting. Uh, and hundreds of episodes, hundreds of Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast and dozens that we're taping for this podcast. We've never talked with someone who's actually had a conversation with the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett. So to the extent you feel comfortable, as you mentioned earlier, you're owned by Berkshire Hathaway and have been, I think, for several decades. The, I believe the founders sold to him and we know his companies own great brands like Nebraska Furniture Mart here locally, Seas Candy that has offices in retail locations in Salt Lake City, Geico and others. Talk a bit about what's it like to be owned and be part of Berkshire Hathaway. And then maybe if you'll roll up the sleeves and tell us a little bit about what you've learned from Warren Buffett's leadership style. And I think you even had dinner with him at some point in your career. I have. And, and um, you know, the way Warren operates is that that he, you know, is mostly hands off on, on his businesses. He buys businesses that are already successful and, and uh, you know, he is very inquisitive. He, he is always asking questions of how things are going, but it, it's not in a micromanagement way whatsoever. It, it is, um, he, he is a fantastic, you know, leader. And um, he, it's really, it's really a, a joy to be part of the Berkshire Hathaway family. And, and um, what I've learned from him is, you know, for, for as much admiration as I have of him, which is enormous, um, he, he is the most humble and down to earth and real person that you would ever meet. And he, he, when he, he can tell some fantastic stories um, about the, the experiences that he's had um, but he, but he's also interested in what's going on in, in, in your business and in your world. And, and um, uh, I think that that's what makes him so incredible is that he has such an inquisitive mind and he never wants to stop learning. And I think that's a great lesson for a lot of leaders. Tony, as you think about um, the lessons that you've learned across your own journey, what would you say to those who are aspiring to be leaders in their organization. Perhaps they're at the managerial director level, they're looking to be a vice president or beyond that in the C-suite. What are some of the talents that you most value amongst the executive team in your C-suite? Well, particularly if you're talking about leadership, you know, the ability to coach and develop others is, is number one. You know, I mean, first of all, you, you have to lead with honesty and integrity. You know that that's like a a, a non non negotiable, but uh, you know if if you have that that ind individual core value uh, of of being full of integrity, you know you have to want to grow people and grow teams. And you know the the best feeling for me is watching a, a, an individual or a team doing something that they never thought they could do. Um, where they, they've improved their own lifestyle, you know, where, where a brand new salesperson comes in and, and um, you know, maybe they're making $30,000 a year and, and you've shown them how to make $100,000 a year and it's real life changing money and they're able to take their first family vacation, their first, buy their first car, buy their first home. You watch them get married and have kids and support a family and, 
you know, those, that's what leadership to me is all about is, is making sure that you're invested in others. It's not about you. You know, certainly you have to have strategy and you need to surround yourself with really, really good people that, um, you know, if you understand what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, you can surround yourself with people that counterbalance you to make, make a full unit. Um, but you really got to be in it for the growth of individuals and the growth of teams. And, and um, if you do those things, it's really hard to go wrong. Tony, on that point, I think I read once where you had a uh, experience recruiting someone and hiring them based on the, the, the education and credentials of their resume. And in fact, you know, your instinct turned out to be perhaps right, maybe a little bit later than you wanted it to be. With the rise of you know, artificial intelligence and data analytics and all the information that we have, where does a leader's instinct, their intuition, their gut fit when it comes to making business decisions, perhaps maybe start with the learning from this hiring story that perhaps didn't go like you want. We've all had one of those stories. And then maybe merge over into how do you lead based on a combination of data and instinct, if at all? Yeah, I think, um, I think that the, well, first of all, talking about the, uh, um, the experience with, it, it was my first executive hire. So it was when I became uh, president and, and uh, chief operating officer. I, I was hiring an executive, and uh, the 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 interview um, went well. And uh, and but I I really was just amazed with this person's resume and uh, overwhelmed almost with this person's resume. And I was like, you know, how could you go wrong with a resume that looks this good? And um, and uh, the, you know, after about a year, um, you know, it, it just didn't work out between. The individual in the company, and again, this person's not a bad person, or not intelligent, or you know, none of those things. It just was not a good cultural fit for for our organization and what we were trying to accomplish and where we were trying to go. And um, you know, I had always had great success, really being able to ask good questions in an interview to to really find people's motive. And um, you know, and and is their motive, you know, to have a title, or is their motive? you know, to make gobs of money, you know, or is there motive, you know, to grow teams and be able to, to develop people through, you know, positive reinforcement, honest conversations, you know, uh, growth techniques, all of those things. And, and um, um, I, I always had a knack for that kind of coming up through the organization. And I just, I just lost my way. I thought I needed to do more for the executive. And, uh, and I learned, and I've hired several executives since then that have gone uh, very well. Um, but uh, um, it, it was a very, very good learning lesson. And, and with where technology and AI and all that stuff plays in, you know, there's a pre-screening process that I think that all of those tools um, can, can certainly help get you to a narrow candidate pool. But at the end of the day, you have to know who you are. You have to know, you know, what your strengths and weaknesses are. You have to know what you need in the organization. And you have to be able to ask the questions that are going to get you to, is this person going to be able to fill that role in the way that I need them to fill that role? And are they going to fit with the team? You know, and, and that doesn't mean that people just roll over and play dead. I mean, that, that's, are they going to con contribute to the team, challenge people in the appropriate way, um, but still understand what our values are and what we are trying to accomplish and do it in a very respectful way um, with, with how the company has grown over the course of time. So I think, I think there is a mix between the two, but ultimately I think the gut still plays a huge part in your final decision. Tony, speaking of strengths and weaknesses, let's talk about yours on both sides. 
what would someone describe it's like to work for you that perhaps wasn't real charitable? Perhaps think of someone who is your detractor in your career and they were talking about what it's like to work for you. What would they say? They were your, they were your detractor. Probably my detractors would, would say, um, honestly, they, they'd probably say that I'm too positive and they would perceive that as, as fluff and not authentic. Um, and, uh, um, and, and they might also say that, that I'm, I'm exceptionally goal oriented and, and I may have unreasonable expectations as far as what can be achieved. And that doesn't mean at, a, at even an individual level. I mean, I, I challenge people at an individual level, but I mean, even as a, as a corporate level, I'm, I'm always throwing out wild goals just to make people think outside the box on, if I told you we had to do this, what would we do differently? You know, and, um, and mo more of those are inquisitive questions than they are, you know, um, driven, uh, I don't know if, uh, you know, it's not certainly not a dictatorship, but that'd probably be what, what, uh, what my detractors would probably say is, is that, you know, although I'm trying to be authentic on a, on a regular basis, with who I am and 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 what even what I believe on a personal level, um, some people may think that that is um, not authentic because it's overly positive. I mean, it's a balance, is it not? Because Liz Wiseman wrote what I think is one of the best leadership books ever, called Multipliers. It actually is in Franklin Covey's All Access Pass. And Liz, her premise is: in order for you to be a multiplier of talent, you first have to know what are the nine accidental diminisher tendencies we all have. No leader is either a multiplier or they're a diminisher. They're doing both at the same time. And of these nine accidental diminisher tendencies, things like the idea person and the optimist, the perfectionist, the strategist, the rescuer, one of them, in fact, is the optimist, is that you know, a, a great contagious leadership talent can be the aspirational optimist, but also sometimes it can disconnect you from your team when they think you don't really realize how difficult something is to do or you're disconnected from you know, the, the path to getting a goal accomplished. And similarly, you mentioned that perhaps sometimes your goals are a little bit, you know, too high achieving because sometimes you can set goals that are, are achievable and sometimes they can be out of reach, can they not? And they can actually, not you in particular, but they can impact morale. You've proven you have self-awareness because you answered a tough question on camera, which is what's it like to work from you from the point of view of a detractor? How do you take what you also perceive as strengths, right? Your optimism and your goal-oriented mindset. How do you balance those to make sure that they work in a way that lifts and encourages and perhaps isn't either disconnected or diminishes people? Gosh, that goal is too big. Tony's out of touch. I'm going to phone it in. I can't do it. How do you balance that? That is, a, uh, that is the $10 million question, Scott. I think that's uh, that's absolutely incredible question. I love it. Um, I will tell you that the optimism part of me is 100%. It, it is it is who I want to be in this world, and um, you know I, I believe there's always you, you control your attitude and and uh, you know you don't control the things that happen to you, but you control how you react to it. Um, and so what I personally try to do is I try it globally. They may see this optimism, and and they may if they don't know who I am and that that's the way I live, um, then it's my responsibility to, to have a conversation. So 
when I go to the when I go to all the regions and I talk to all the people, you know, I want to have one-on-one -on -one conversations, and I have um, I have incredible conversations with people, and and I I want them to ask me why questions. Why do you do this? Why do you do that? Why does the company do this? And I want to be able to answer every one of those questions. And and I, I really don't have anything to hide, you know, when it when it comes to to any of those questions. As a matter of fact, two times a year I do a, a, a town hall where I spend about an hour um, communicating the company strategy to all of our leaders in the organization. And then I do an open Q and A for that is a, that I allow to be anonymous. Um, so, because I want real people to give me real questions and and not be shy because of what what they think might happen, um, so I, I actually let anonymous questions come through, and sometimes they go on for two to two and a half hours, and I don't leave the meeting until every single one of those questions is answered, and and I want people to know who I am, why I believe what I believe, why I think this outrageous goal, we why we have a chance. Why do we have a chance at this outrageous goal? And, and why did I even say it? Why would that even come into my mind? And, and uh, what, what is my motivation behind it? And, and how am I trying to motivate you? So those are the things that, that I think are really important to have in a, in a smaller group context and even in an individual context. But you know, I, I give lots of opportunities for people to ask whatever they wanna ask me anytime they wanna ask me. And I'm never gonna duck any question. And I tell people you know, out of the corporate strategy, you know, there's about 1% of the things that I know that I'm not going to tell anybody because it wouldn't be prudent to the business. 99% of the stuff that I know is pretty much open information for anybody. So um, if you have a question for me, just ask me the question and, and I'm going to give you as straight an answer as I possibly can. And, um, and hopefully whether, whether you like the answer or you don't like the answer, at least you're going to understand how I came to that decision. I love that response. I read recently where you can tell a lot about an organization's culture based on the types of questions that are safe to ask of the CEO, right? Safe cultures uh, pollinate unsafe answers or meaning bold, courageous questions and such. So I, I like that. Now you've earned the right to the other flip side of that question, which is think about a promoter, a champion of yours, someone who actually is a, a big fan. I'm sure there are thousands of those across your organization, how would a promoter of you describe your leadership style? What would she or, see, would she or he say about uh, how you lead the organization? I think probably the, the, the most feedback that I get is probably again on that, on that positive, yeah. positivity side. They, um, you know, wh whether it, I've been traveling all night or, or um, you know, it, we're going through a pandemic, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to find the bright side of everything, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that I'm not a realist. I mean, again, times can be hard and, and times can be hard for everybody. And, and, um, and everybody is going through their own personal journey and processes things in, in, in a very different way. And it, it's not for me to judge who, who is going through what and how they feel about it. But if I can just bring that little ray of sunshine every single day into somebody's life, you know, that's what I feel like I was put on this earth to do. And I always talk to my leaders about broadening their circle of influence. And, and you know, particularly in this role, I have a great opportunity to, to broaden my circle of influence, you know, nationally and, and thanks to this podcast around the world. And, and um, 
I think that, uh, that that's what I want to do is, is I want to make a positive difference in the world. I try to do it through Nebraska Furniture Mart. I try to do it, you know, in my personal life. And, um, and it's the way I lead. And I want to surround myself with, with people that I work with every day that, that kind of have that same mission is to make the world a little bit better place. And, and uh, I, I don't know why we can't do that. And, and uh, so, so many people may look at that as an unreasonable goal, but uh, I certainly don't. Tony, you have very subtly pulled a lot of ideas from Dr. Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm gonna guess that's one of the books you've read based on a lot of the words that you use and live. One of his lasting legacies, of course, was how quotable Dr. Covey was. Profound wisdom and very simple words. One of those was, as a leader, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. And you seem to be a great representation of both of those, a, a model and as a light. We want to thank you for your time today. Thanks for investing in our audience on C-Suite Conversations. Looking forward to the future. What's happening with your expansion at Nebraska Furniture Mart? What's next? What's next? We, we actually just uh, partnered with uh, Cedar Park, which is a, uh, a suburb of Austin, Texas. We already have a store in the Colony, which is a suburb of Dallas. Um, but now we are expanding to, uh, to the uh, Austin metro metropolitan area in Cedar Park. And we're, we're just waiting for state approval. And, and uh, once that happens, we'll start building and uh, should be a, a, a lot of fun. And, and uh, we're, we just want to continue to grow and, and continue to improve people's lifestyles. And hopefully uh, um, we'll have a Nebraska Furniture Mart near you soon. Tony Bolt, CEO of Nebraska Furniture Mart, part of the Warren Buffett family of companies at Berkshire Hathaway. Thanks for making the selfless time to invest in our listeners and viewers on Franklin Covey's C-Suite Conversations podcast. It's been my pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.